Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. On June 1st, New Orleans lost a living legend, the iconic, the one and only Leah Chase. The city's mourning in the way only New Orleans can, with second lines from Orleans Avenue to Louis Armstrong Airport. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're remembering Leah by listening to her own words, words gathered through the many hours we spent together since the inception of this radio show. Whenever I called, Leah always said yes and was quick to share her opinions, whether popular or not. We'll hear lots of those opinions as we share with you the wisdom and wit of Leah Chase on this week's Louisiana Eats. It's been a privilege to call Leah Chase my friend. Though we crossed paths in the culinary world many times before Hurricane Katrina, it was in its aftermath that we forged a relationship that transcended the 35-year age difference between us. Leah treated me like her contemporary, sharing the stories of great happiness and great grief that were her history. When Louisiana Eats started airing in 2010, Leah was one of our earliest guests, and we had the pleasure of having her on again and again over the years. By far, my favorite time occurred on Friday, August 6, 2012. It was 12th night, but more importantly, it was Leah's 89th birthday. I'd received a call from then-Mayor Mitch Landrieu's office asking if I could help facilitate delivering Mrs. Chase to the annual carnival kickoff at Gallier Hall. Traditionally, the mayor ushers in carnival season with a king cake party, but Mitch wanted to honor Leah on her day in a special way. Our journey to Gallier Hall began literally at her kitchen door and carried us through the bumpy streets of New Orleans. <laughs> so you've been in the kitchen since what time this morning? 6.30. 6.30. And so you made the okra gumbo because you do that every Friday? Every Friday. I do okra gumbo every Friday. I do lima beans and shrimp every Friday. So today I had to go and make the spaghetti for the meatballs. I did that. I'm making eggplant for C, so I did the eggplant. So I was rolling this morning, girl. I don't know where I got the energy from or where the knees worked good this morning. And now the mayor's going to interrupt you. You're on a roll. He's, he's calling you out the kitchen, huh? Calling me out the kitchen, but that's okay. <laughs> the Dookie Chase Restaurant Kitchen was home to Leah Chase since the age of 22. Even in her 90s, when a lifetime of standing on her feet had taken its physical toll, it was the place you'd be most likely to find her, standing at her stove, stirring a pot, or making a roux. 
For over seven decades, Leah fed generations of locals, celebrities, politicians, and civil rights activists. Along the way, she became friends with famous figures like Ray Charles, Lena Horne, and New Orleans' first black mayor, Ernest Dutch Morial. The last mayor that I was really close with was Dutch, uh-huh. you know. The other ones were well, Mark, we were cool, but that's it, but you know. <laughs> but Dutch was the last, the rest, I wasn't too high on that list. <laughs> well, when you don't vote for them, you know what you're going to oh, do. What you gonna do for Never them. one to shy away from politics, Leah was a tireless activist, using her restaurant as a catalyst for social change in the city. At a time when it was illegal to do so, Dookie Chase was one of the first restaurants in the South to serve black and white diners together. The upstairs meeting room operated as a hub for civil rights leaders like Rudy Lombard, Martin Luther King Jr., and Thurgood Marshall. Leah's devotion to her restaurant was intertwined with her long-standing commitment to progress for her city. For me, I feel like I have a special job because so many people are not, you know, moving like they should be or like they could be. And I'm going to work like the Dickens to get people up and going. Poppy, if we just got everybody up and moving and doing something, everybody can't do the same thing. But everybody put their little party in and do what they have to do. We will have a magnificent city. Pick up your pants and go to work. In addition to her philanthropy, volunteerism, and advocacy efforts, Leah Chase was an avid promoter of art. Over several decades, she amassed an influential collection of African-American art, which you can find hanging today on the walls at Dookie Chase. In 2012, Leah, the art's patron, was the subject of a series of art portraits by painter Gustav Blasch that were displayed at the New Orleans Museum of Art. Later, one of the portraits was sent to the National Art Gallery in Washington, D.C., where it hangs today. And uh, it's all paintings of me in the kitchen of all the places. It's paintings of me working and doing things in the kitchen. Poppy, I look like heck. I do. My rear end look like it's about five feet wide, but I don't care, it's me. I say he painted me, even though he could have made me look like Halle Berry or somebody. Isn't that Girl, just our yeah, love? You know, that's it what happens. It brought the stove in the Smithsonian. Well, you take whatever you get. <laughs> whatever you get, you take it. When Leah Chase and I arrived at Gallier Hall, the Twelfth Night festivities were already underway. We sat in the front row with Cheryl Landrew, then the city's first lady. Soon after taking the stage, Mayor Mitch Landrew offered his birthday tribute to Leah. I have a young lady here who I'm in love with. Uh, It's not my wife. Um, Let me say that over. I have another young lady here that I'm in love with as well as my wife. (laughs) She watches over me. And uh, anybody who knows her knows that what I'm about to tell you is true. If you get out of line, she's going to smack you around a little bit. She did this to President Obama, who happened to grace her presence at his restaurant, you would think. But the young man had the audacity to put Tabasco in her gumbo, and she let him know it. (laughs) Is that true? If I'm lying, I'm dying. She said, Mr. President, people don't put Tabasco in their gumbo in my shop. 
And then she let him do it because, of course, he was a leader of the free world. Uh, but this young lady is having her birthday uh, today, uh, 89th birthday, and we have flowers for Miss Leah Chase. All right, so before y'all sit down, here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Miss Leah. Happy birthday to you. I think it's fair to say that we would really not be here were it not for Leah Chase and her family, and the city of New Orleans would not be what it is. Dookie Chase's was the place uh, that opened up its doors in the deepest part of the South during our most difficult times so that people could have communion uh, and find a way to seek uh, and to grab common ground. And uh, Miss Chase has steadied our faces uh, when they needed to be steadied as only a great mother can uh, and a leader and a person that had great courage under very difficult circumstances. So Leah, from the bottom of my heart and the bottom of the heart of the people of the city of New Orleans, thank you for everything that you have done for us and God bless you. Thank you. The celebrations continued, but we couldn't stick around for long because Leah had to get back to her kitchen. Did you have any idea it would be that spectacular? I had no idea they were gonna do this. For one thing, I had no idea. I thought I would just go just go help the man open the thing up, but it was really a pretty ceremony. So Leah, what's the rest of your day gonna bring now? Back in the kitchen working. <laughs> I'm going to work right now because we had 50 people in one room for luncheon and what, 12 in another room and then the regular customers. And then if I'm open tonight, I got to get those those dinners out like I want them to get Is that out. what you're going to do for your birthday, is open mm -hmm. on Friday night for dinner? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that, that's a good birthday for me. Your it's customers good. will be able to come and see you? I love it. I love it when I can do those menus. I, I, have, I had a good life. It's a long way from the strawberry patch. <laughs> a long way. A long way, but it's good. Born January 6, 1923, Leah Chase grew up on a strawberry farm in Madisonville, Louisiana, the eldest of 11 children who, despite their lack of material goods, never wanted for a thing. Speaking with us at her restaurant, Leah shared stories from those formative years. When I was coming up, we were so very poor, and what I'm so proud of, we were so poor. My mother had all these children, but people were kind to us. Big corporations didn't help like they help it today. And baby, that was a good thing. It made you work. It made you strive hard to get out of that poverty cycle. My daddy and his brothers would form, and my grandfather, they would form these 15 acres. Now, that was an ordeal then, because I remember my dad and them have to get up it. If it was cold and there was a frost to come, daddy would have to stay in the field all night long and make fires all around the field 
So when the bearers came, you got up in the morning at four o'clock in the morning. Now we lived in Madisonville. The farm was like five miles out. Walked. You had to walk? Walk. Oh goodness. Get out and pick those strawberries, 15 acres, come back home, get dressed, and go to school. How many children did your mom and dad raise over there? Eleven. Eleven? Eleven. So we lived good lives. We lived off the land. We, we didn't have a lot of luxuries. But do you need all of that to live? Do you need all of that to be kind to people? No. I don't remember us being sad or anything, Poppy. We were never sad. And you know what? We did for one another. We had to scrub the floors on our knees and all that kind of stuff. We didn't complain about a thing. We'd sweep the yard, play hopscotch in the yard or whatever. Everybody was happy. And your treat at night was pecans. You know, they had pecan trees all around. You would peel pecans and you would play games for pecans and stupid little things. But we were so happy. We had a pig, we raised a hog for the fat. You know, you would raise this hog and you would feed the hog every day. My daddy was something. Couldn't give the hog potatoes that wasn't cooked. Wash the potatoes and cook up for the hog. The hog was living better than me. <laughs> if you fatten that hog up to 300 pounds, you were going to get about 100 pounds of fat. And that Lord was gonna take you through the winter. And you talk about coffee things, you know, preserved things. Well, we didn't know what coffee was, but we were eating that coffee pork. Yeah, right. That, that's how we served it. We, they fried off the chops and left them in the grease. And when you wanted a chop, you got it out of the grease. So we had coffee when it wasn't fashionable to have coffee. You learn how to live and you learn how to appreciate things. People talk about quail until the day I love quail. Well, you know, you picked the strawberries, the quail got your strawberry patch. What you did, shot him. <laughs> and that was your breakfast, you know. You had a plum tree in the yard, your mother made plum jelly and raised that little quail with plum jelly and there you had that. Now that was a luxury. You see, my dad would raise, he never raised just enough for us to eat because that wasn't right. You had to give the neighbors. And he was a stickler. We didn't have a penny, we didn't have that. But go give the neighbors this, give our teen this, give this one that. But to preserve that we didn't have freezers in those days, so he made a slice of okra, slice it up, and then my mother had flour sacks or that you bleached out white and you had, we'd spread those out on the table in the sun put that okra out there every day. Sunday dinner was stewed chicken. You didn't have chicken every day. You had chicken on Sunday. It could either be stewed chicken, fried chicken, baked macaroni for sure. If you had enough money to buy meat, you had what we call pane meat, which was veal, paneed. But you had that on Sunday. You had 
something going special on Sunday. And always gumbo, right? Always gumbo. In the summer when it was okra, you had okra gumbo. In the winter, you had whatever they had to make the gumbo with. If it was squirrels that your daddy shot or a rabbit, you had gumbo on Sunday. With filet then in the winter? Oh yeah, with filet. Your mother took great pains in making that gumbo on Sunday. You know, and you never make a little pot. Nothing for us was in a little <laughs> pot. They had so many of us. You'd make this big pot of gumbo. Now, y'all also would go down to the river or the bayou and catch fish. Well, that was the funny thing. My mother loved to fish. You know, my mother, she always had a heart problem. I never remember my mother taking a Valium or anything like that. If we got on her nerves, she said, go dig me some worms. So here we are putting soap soapy water down to bring the worms up and put them in a can with some dirt on them. She'd take a fishing pole, go sit on the bayou and fish. That was her relaxation, to sit on the bayou and fish. And it was a simple, simple life. But I don't remember any of us being unhappy. Life in Madisonville taught me the basics. If you walk through the woods, you know what berry you can eat, you know what you can't eat. You know what you can touch, what you can't touch. So you learn basic rules coming up in the country. You're not afraid to kill a chicken because you're gonna kill it to eat it. You know everything about food. And you learn how to create different things with simple food. I got the Native Son Award for St. Tammany Parish. Now, who would have thought this poor, poor little girl coming up would grow up to get the Native Son Award? That is a blessing. But that just shows you, you just work every day, have faith in God, have faith in yourself, and you can pull it off. You can pull it off and treat everybody fairly. Right out of school, Leah Chase took her first restaurant job in a little cafe in the French Quarter. It was during that time that she found her calling as a restaurateur and met some memorable characters along the way. Speaking to Mark Cave for the historic New Orleans collection, Leah remembered her early days working in the Quarter. The French Quarter has always excited me. After you cross Rampart Street, get into the French Quarter. It's like going to another city because it was a different life than I would see where I was living. And I kind of liked what I saw. But after I left school and went back home, I was 16, and there was no work in the country to do but housework for blacks. So. When I became 18, I, I wanted to come here to work. So they let me come here and I stayed with my aunt and got this job nowhere but the French Quarter. <laughs> they almost had a fit. 
that was unheard of, you know, this, this little Creole girl of color working in a French Quarter, that was a no-no. But I went to work and I saw things in the French Quarters, met people that interested me, like Ricky Alvarez, the great artist, Louis Henry Hobbs, another great artist, and you meet people. And I think that's what made me like, I'm a people person. I love people. I don't know, people in those days had class. And they did whatever they did, but I just enjoyed seeing them. I just enjoyed feeding them. I, I worked in this little restaurant. A woman taught me everything because I had no idea what to do. And my children and the people I talked to, they said, I don't believe you. I said, well, go back down to the Times Picayune and dig up those old papers and look at the want ads. This is the way they applied. Light-skinned colored girl. That's the way they described what they wanted to work. I said, well, I'm not so light-skinned, but I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> so I applied for that job, and she hired me. We were not allowed in 1946 to serve white people in this restaurant. It was against the law, but we did. And the people knew we did. And we would wait those tables. I was there with two other girls. Now listen to the ages we were. I was then 18. One girl was only 16. One girl was 19. We ran that floor, you hear me? I'll never forget, so I asked this chef, he was from Jamaica or somewhere, why don't they have women in here working in the kitchen? He said, well, because women can't pick up the pots. I thought to myself, well, I don't see you picking up those pots. I see I'm going to pick up the pots and wash them for you. <laughs> I'm picking up these pots, washing these pots and do them. Why can't I be a cook or why can't I be something else? But it was a learning experience for me in those days. I remember the Old View Carré restaurant. And that's when Brennan's came up. I used to pass that restaurant every day, coming from work. And in there, they had chairs. And I have chairs in my other dining room over there. I always wanted those chairs. And those chairs, I said, oh, I wish I had a restaurant with those chairs. <laughs> Never thinking I wish I could go in this restaurant. So I learned how to serve people, learned how to do things, and learned to love the restaurant business. This interview with Leah Chase about her days in the French Quarter was conducted by Mark Cave for the Historic New Orleans Collection and produced for NOLA Life Stories by former contributor Sarah Holtz. Coming up next, we continue our look back on the life and legacy of Leah Chase. 
Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and Flaming Bananas Foster. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. If you're just joining us, we're spending this episode celebrating the life of New Orleans culinary legend, Leah Chase, who passed away June 1st, 2019, at the age of 96. In 1945, Leah met big band leader Edgar Dookie Chase Jr., whose parents operated a simple sandwich shop named for Dookie's father in New Orleans' Treme neighborhood. Eventually, Leah went to work for her in-laws at the restaurant. At that time, in segregated New Orleans, there were no fine dining establishments for African Americans. With linen tablecloths and napkins, silverware and stemware, Leah began her own quiet revolution. Serving Creole classics like gumbo and chicken clemenceau, Leah elevated the dining culture for everyone. And everyone meant black and white diners alike. Dookie Chase was one of the earliest restaurants in the South to integrate their dining room, which functioned as a safe haven where civil rights activists could share a bowl of gumbo while hatching plans to change the world. Leah shared memories of that time with us, beginning with how she came to meet her husband and partner of 70 years, Dookie Chase. When I met Dookie, well, you know he was with the music. He was a musician, and the funny thing about it is I never liked musicians. (laughs) Well, he met me at a dance. He was up on the stage, directed his band, and he told everybody, I'm going to dance with that girl. They said, are you not, she's got to dance with you. <laughs> so, sure enough, and, that, and then that came around and met his mother, and we could relate to the families were almost all alike. You know, all the so-called Creoles of color lived almost the same kind of life. You know, they worked every day, they cooked, they sewed, and that's what I did, sewed more than cooked. I, I didn't start cooking until I came in this restaurant. So, and, and it went on from there, and then we so got married. How was... did Mr. Chase ask you to marry him? <laughs> You've never told me this no. before. <laughs> I never did because it was just, you know, back in those days, you didn't have all the formality that you have today. You just know, well, we're going to get married. So we just went off and got married, you know. And that was so funny because he was only 18 years old and I was 23. Here we go off and get married. And when we come back, everybody said, oh, to my mother-in-law, this girl is just going to ruin your business. But my mother-in-law was, she wasn't like that. She was a nice lady and she really was. She loved this business. 
and she always said, Leah, you're just like me. What she meant was our lifestyles were like, she loved this business, I loved this business. She truly loved her husband, and I truly loved Dookie. Then his daddy died. His daddy was a young man. His daddy was only 57 years old. Wow. And when Big Dookie died, well, my mother-in-law had nobody else. So he had to come in here and work. He didn't really have a choice. It was what he had he to had do. He had no choice. It's what he had to do. Well, I never knew that he ever worked behind the bar here. Oh, so yeah. oh I, he was a good bartender, and I didn't drink a thing. Never drank and never smoked. And I think that's why he couldn't relate to that music world. Because when he got as much as he loved it, he knew the life of a musician was not easy. It is not an easy life. Particularly in the days that he came through, it was a hard life, a rough life. He used to sit right here and wait for people to come in and they would talk and he would talk about his music. He would sing to them and play his music. Then he ran this right, he took a course by mail from Cornell University. Learn how to manage this business, learn all that. The thing he went off doing after a while, but he still worked and he was promoting bands. He had top-notch musicians. They went with King Cole, Lionel Hampton, Duke Ellington. They went with big bands. So he did a lot. And people didn't know that because he was so low-key about what he did and how he did it. He used to work for the NAACP at that time. He would go all down in the ninth ward, get members, get members. We got to have everybody join the NAACP, work with Thurgood Marshall, work with a man from here named Nathaniel Bird, Dutch Boreal, A.P. Turo, all those people, Ernest Wright. He was then responsible, I believe, for all of the people, the politicians, the members of the NAACP, the people who were he moving was. to end segregation. He was. He, he would, was the one gathering them here. He would gather them here. King would, King, I'll never forget, see, that's when I used to go home at night. He would bring King in here. They would come in here at night, talk to Dookie. You know, you got to make things work where you fit with everybody, white, black, everybody, you know. But, and, and that takes a little doing, you know, and that's my whole life trying to make the whole thing work. Over the next several decades, Dookie Chase grew in size and national renown, as did Leah's reputation as the queen of Creole cooking. She became not just an icon, but also an inspiration for a new generation of African-American chefs. She would also take on a new role, art collector. Dookie Chase became home to quite a distinguished collection. Well, the walls are covered with African-American art, art by African-American artists and some of my grandchildren's work and some guys, big guys like John Biggers, Elizabeth Catlett, Samella Lewis, and David Driscoll. Those are my friends, John Scott. So I really kind of enjoy that. 
Like so many of us, Leah's life took a dramatic turn on August the 29th, 2005. Hurricane Katrina's floodwaters inundated Dookie Chase Restaurant. Her art collection survived, but the culinary landmark was shuttered for almost two years. Leah, let's go back and visit those days right after the storm. When did you first come back to the restaurant, and when you got here, how'd you find it? So it was about a year before I came back in here. I kept trying to come, and they wouldn't let me through. And, you know, David, my grandson, was a fireman, and he kept saying, Grandmother, you can't come. I said, I know I can come, but the water was, what, two feet in here, five and a half feet on the bar. It was terrible, terrible. I don't know how my grandkids did what they did in here. They really cleaned out the refrigerators and all that. I had about 50, 60 gallons of gumbo in that refrigerator and all the food, so that was an awful mess to clean out. And it wasn't just the restaurant you were dealing with. Your home and the homes of most of your family had all been devastated by the storm, too. Everything. We had no house. We had nothing. Everything was gone. But, um, and you know, people got to think this is weird, but I say thanks to FEMA. I had a trailer. You know that. So that was funny. Everybody became trailer trash, you know. (laughs) Oh, well, everybody. Now, that's a good thing, because then you won't criticize people for living in a trailer. You will appreciate whatever they can have to live in. And I appreciated FEMA for giving me that space, because I had nowhere to go. And they did that, so that was fun. I even liked the Red Cross meals, beans, pork and beans, and rice and a piece of bread. I was grateful for that. How did the rebuilding here begin? What happened? As I said, I didn't know where to go or what to do. When I came in here, for some reason I had no fear. I should have been afraid of everything, but I wasn't. And I just said, I know I could get a broom and a mop and clean. And I got an electrician in. He said, I'll have you some lights in here by tomorrow. I said, well, you don't look like God to me. (laughs) So I don't know where you're going to get the lights from, but sure enough, he did. He did. He said, now I am my God. I said, close to it. <laughs> you got the thing. But when we came in here, it was so terrible, Poppy. It was awful. But people came. Wasn't that marvelous when you think about it? People came from all over to help me clean up this thing. You know, all these little ladies from uptown came and cleaning and polishing whatever chairs I had left. I saved 50 chairs. And they did them to what you see back there now. But people came from all, I just thought that was wonderful, that people would come and offer me money and things to help me get back on my feet. I was, I will forever be grateful. I have never seen that kind of outpouring in my life. Never, never. Because here I am, I'm, I'm really not nobody, you know, really. But to see the vision that these people had to know that if I, we put this back, that'll be one part of our city that can work and can contribute to building the rest of it. That was unbelievable. I will never, never forget that. I have met so many good people, Poppy. It just makes you see how good people are in our city. We have a good city and wonderful people. Speaking of 
speaking with Leah Chase again on the 10-year anniversary of the hurricane, she reflected more on Katrina's impact. I'm a believer in God, you know that. And when things happen like Katrina, it's for a purpose. You know, we sit up in New Orleans, we think we haven't made the change, taking everything for granted. And to me, God said, mm-mm. I'm going to slap you down, now you pick it up again. <laughs> I'm going to slap you down, now you pick it up again. And that we have done. We had this old project across the street with the ugly stack of bricks. <laughs> Take that out. It, it served a purpose. That purpose is over. Now you start again. Put new housing, better housing for people, and we did that. Those oaks who withstood the storm, we learn to sit in them and appreciate them. And all those things are important, and that's the good side of things. Don't keep groping on the same old, same old. And everything that you think is bad, look for the good in it. I mean, it's just like looking at art. Um, you might say, this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Take another look. Take another look. In 2007, before Dookie Chase could officially reopen after Hurricane Katrina, Leah, with the help of Chef John Fulz, hosted her annual Holy Thursday Gumbo Zerbs event there. What exactly is Gumbo Zerbs? When we come back from a short break, we dig into our archives and let Leah Chase answer that question for us. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What exactly is gumbo zerbs? Gumbo zerbs is a green gumbo served laden with lore. Depending on who you're talking with, it's either vegetarian or chock full of every kind of meat you can think of. In New Orleans, there's no one more synonymous with the meat-filled variety than the late Leah Chase. She served her famous gumbo zerbs every Holy Thursday for over 60 years from the kitchen of Dookie Chase Restaurant. And when she was getting ready to reopen following Katrina, it was the first meal she served. Gumbo zerbs has its roots in the Creole Catholic community and is surrounded by superstition. 
To get a better understanding of this dish, let's hear Leah Chase talk about it from back in 2011. Gumbo zerb is a green gumbo. You know, you have to use uneven numbers of greens, five, seven, nine, or 11 different kinds of greens. Can't have even numbers, that's bad luck. We use collard greens, mustard greens, kale, cabbage, Swiss chard. I love to put beet tops in it. You put the beet tops in it, that gives it a good, good flavor. And you can put some lettuce in it. But the thing that Creoles, they used to go in the neutral ground, you know, our neutral grounds, and they would dig peppergrass. You would see them out there with the little brown bags getting their peppergrass. And they would wash it off and clean it and put that in your gumbo zab. That gave it a little lemony taste, but it gave a different kind of flavor. Now that we can't find the peppergrass, I use watercress. But we do that on Holy Thursday. You see, you know, this town was predominantly Catholic. And that was the last meat day for Catholics. So you put all kinds of meat in that gumbo zab. Stew, you put sausage, you put ham, you put chicken, all the works in that gumbo zab. So you had a good hearty meal. And that's that's the only thing you ate with some fried chicken on Holy Thursday. But that takes some doing to do that gumbo zab. You have to grind it. I don't like it chopped, I like it grind. So you have a smooth dish, you know, it's like a puree. Uh, one customer say it looks like algae, but it tastes good. <laughs> Leah Chase explaining gumbo zerbs to us in 2011. You'll find Leah's special Holy Thursday recipe at poppytooker.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. We now return to our portrait of Leah Chase. After Dookie Chase Restaurant recovered from the damage of Hurricane Katrina, the restaurant returned to serving its regulars, as well as a litany of luminaries. In May of 2016, Leah became the first African-American to receive the James Beard Foundation's Lifetime Achievement Award. Sadly, on November 4th of the same year, Leah's husband and partner, Edgar Dookie Chase, the man who played a key role in her success, passed away. When we spoke with her after his death, she reflected on their relationship, both as husband and wife and as co-proprietors of Dookie Chase Restaurant. You know, when I came along, this is not what I came to do. I came to push him up and ride his coattail. But he wasn't that way. So I had to push out. I had to go push out, do what I had to do to make it. And his thing was always to take care of his family, to be sure he left me and his children without any debt. That was his big things. Now, you know, I'm a different kind of person. I could owe the world. And whoever paid for it, pay for it. Not Dookie. Mm-mm. Not Dookie. He was always there to say, look, now you can't spend this money. You can't do this. Money never was my first priority. It was always what I could do for somebody else. It was always 
how I can move this business on. That was my whole life, how I can make this business one of the best. If he wasn't outgoing, then I had to be outgoing. People who never saw Dookie, you know, and I used to kid about that. Well, they say, well, Leah, why is always Dookie's name here? I said, look, I'm not stupid, you know. Dookie's name stay up there where all the bills go to Dookie. He pay, he pay all the bills. They don't come to Leah. He pay all the bills. <laughs> Oh, the day after Mr. Chase passed, I knew just where you'd be. Right in, in that kitchen. kitchen. <laughs> when I lost Emily, Emily died at about 1 o'clock in the morning. I had to open this place up, so I came in here. When my mother died, I had to open this place up. When Dookie died, I had to open this place up. That's not easy. No. It's not easy. It keeps easy, you going. But it keeps me going. The hard part of it is you have to live. You have to carry on. You can't question death because there are no answers. Why? Who knows why? Where are they? Who knows? We know what we were taught, but we, nobody has ever come back to tell us what happened. Death for loved ones, if you have somebody that you really love, your child or your husband or your mother or your parents, whoever, that pain of death never goes away. You learn to live with it. It never goes away. So, but you can't put that on other people. You have to be happy, and you have to make other people happy and live. I look at life different. I learn to appreciate life more. You meet people, you're able to talk to people, people help you, you help them the best way you know how. And that is a wonderful thing, Poppy. And when I see people like you who scuffle, rise above it all, that's what women are supposed to do. That is the important thing, man. And that's what I try every day to make people understand about the power of women. If you just act like a woman, how powerful you can be, the wonderful things you can do just being a woman. You can't live other people's life. I've learned that. If you want to change anything about you, you have to do it yourself. It's what you did for self, what you did to better the whole world you live in, you are important to do things. And if everybody does what he's supposed to do, it makes a difference. No matter what you do, make a difference. You know, you can earn all the money in the world, darling, but if you don't make a difference in this world you live in, you're wasting your time. You've got to make a difference and help somebody else along the way. Chase made an enormous difference in my life and in the lives of everyone who had the great fortune to know her. In the days since her passing, I've heard people say, 
What a loss for the city. In my opinion, nothing could be further from the truth. The gift of Leah lives on today in everyone whose lives she touched and in the legacy of family, friends, and food she leaves behind. Back in 2006, when Leah and I were working so closely together, trying to get the doors open again at Dookie Chase, she would say to me, Poppy, if God would just give me 10 more years, maybe I could pay everyone back. We were blessed with almost 14 more years of Leah Chase. When I saw her granddaughter Tracy last Friday, she told me that Leah was resting quietly and when asked, Grandmother, what can we do for you? Leah answered, Just thank everyone for me. That was my friend, Leah Chase. And that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Satarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Tableau, brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.